Welcome to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI casts. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Brago Diagnostics. Well, hello everyone. I'm Bill Faulkner and welcome to this another MRI cast episode. Now, this episode is going to be a continuation of our last episode, the MRI Potpourri, and this will be Potpourri Part 2. It's kind of hard to say that. And as such, with me today are my co-hosts first from the Kingdom in the North, Howard the Wise, who practices medicine under the name of Dr. Howard Raleigh. Hello, Howard. Uh, thank you, Bill. It's the wise guy, not a, not the, the wise guy. Right, the wise guy. Okay, Howard, the wise guy. Okay, and from the kingdom in the south, Lady Kristen, the kind, aka Kristen Harrington. <laughs> Hello, Kristen. <laughs> I love that part where you say lady. Um, no, I, <laughs> I, yeah, I live in the south, and I'm I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> Glad to hear it. And back with us today, also from the North, the all-knowing and mystical physics wizard, Sir Carl Vegan. Welcome back, Carl. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me again. I'm glad everybody's here. And so, as I said, we want to continue our wide-ranging discussion that we were having last time. And I'd like to start with a topic that gets a lot of discussion in many of our safety presentations and courses, and that deals with changing patients out of street clothes. And while most people are, are tending to do this, I'd like to give you just a little, little background, courtesy of uh, Howard DeWise Guy, who sent, a, um, sent me a little pre-publication uh, paper and it's I think it's coming out of uh, the guys or people that wrote it out of Vancouver um, and again it's pre-published so we really don't have anything to share with you on it but they do uh, talk about thermal injuries and they quote one of the uh, papers that was written by a bunch of folks at the FDA a few years ago where 59% of adverse events reported to the FDA MAUD database over a 10-year period were uh, thermal injuries. And, you know, they come from a lot of different uh, a lot of different uh, origins, but the one they're particularly interested in was thermal injuries caused by fabric. And according to the authors, uh, as of December 2020, there were at least six pertinent cases that have been published. And uh, these cases, some of them I'm familiar with, burns from a jogging pants, burns from undershirt with metallic microfibers. That was the 11-year-old girl that we've uh, probably talked about before. There was a smoldering blanket in an MRI suite. Uh, this was a, uh, if, if uh, this one just said that the patient was wrapped in a hospital blanket and uh, to isolate her from RF coils, which is really not a good way to do it. And at the end of the imaging, the technician noticed a strong burning order and burning order and soot inside the MRI bore. The blanket was found to be smoldering without flames. Um, and this one, I don't know, there was something similar out of France that was a blanket that was used for PET imaging. And they use it in PET CT, but of course, obviously in PET MR, it's a problem. At any rate, they list a whole bunch of these. And... I would like to get everyone's uh, here's opinion on uh, changing patients and also understanding that this means can mean underwear if the certain article of clothing is going to be within the volume of the RF coil. So, uh, Carl, since you're our wizard guest, why don't we start with you and then we'll work our way outward here. All right. Well, thanks, Bill. Well, I think... As you as you highlighted, there have been some several case reports, and um, it is a big problem that uh, there are certain types of fabrics that come with uh, in embedded uh, metallic fibers, and it's just very important in one way or another to keep those out of the magnet. Um, 
you know, not only is it a safety issue, but it can also cause artifacts, as I think you alluded to. So, and I, I think oh, the big question, the big question is, you know, what what do you do from an institutional, um, from a policy point of view? Um, how do you how do you sort of enforce that? Is it a is a, a blanket? So no pun intended, a blanket policy to keep every <laughs> to change every single patient out of a out of clothing into sort of a hospital approved clothing, um, or is it sort of you use, um, you know, you kind of use your best judgment, um, which again, leaving people up to the best judgment can cause problems, but just, you know, just using other methods to just ensure that there is no, um, you know, clothing that has, you know, any kind of metallic components in it. One of the things, uh, before we move on to the other folks, one of the things that it's important to point out, talking about using your judgment, is you can't rely on the labeling. The ACR right, in, exactly. their 2020, yep. in their 2020 manual says that the FTC, at least in the U.S., the FTC allows a vendor manufacturer up to 5% leeway in what they can say is in the clothing. So they can say 100% cotton, and it's not 100% cotton. And so... You know, this is why uh, why I think it's problematic. One of the one of the people in our classes one time said, "We don't like to ask them, you know, to change their clothing. We prefer to ask them or change their out, take their underwear off. We prefer to ask them where they get their underwear." Now, um, I've got to kind of question the wisdom of that, um, Howard. That sounds like some question you know somebody would be asking somebody kind of inappropriately wouldn't you say so like hey i'm bill i'm here to do your mri and by the way where do you get your underwear <laughs> well i i hear you that that does sound like somebody asked me about my whitey tidies i'm gonna be uh right on, <laughs> you know, on edge I, and, okay, I oh, never, me, oh howard i can never unsee that okay dude I, you just cannot do that. <laughs> but okay. i do want to say you know uh, the that it's 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 really problematic because not only do the labels not say that there's metal in there, but also um, you know they can it, it, they can be in there with all the best ferromagnetic screening questions and detectors and hand magnets and everything else, but you know it's not all ferromagnetic stuff that can conduct electricity. Mm-hmm. So silver microfibers used particularly in athletic garments, yoga pants, stretch pants, some of the logos that you see on jogging pants. These have uh, trace amounts, but enough to conduct electricity of other types of metallic copper or silver microfibers that are used in manufacturing, presumably to reduce bacterial growth and odor and so forth. And so I think no matter what we decide here as a group, um, short of changing everybody, uh, which may be the right answer for some places, that we are particularly cautious if we uh, recognize that someone has athletic garb that is of that antibacterial or adorned sort of uh, appearance. You know, Howard, you bring up a great point there because um, what you're saying is um, very important about if you're going to change everyone. So I, and I have a lot to say about this. So y'all know I have a lot to say about everything, but um, if someone is going to leave their shorts on for a knee exam and you're using a transmit knee, um, transmit receive knee coil, that's not a problem, right? For the RF. It's just not a problem because it's not receiving it. So what I find to be the issue um, across pretty much every place I go is that there's always going to be certain staff. There's two, two things here, staff that don't understand how to differentiate that. And then there's always going to be coming from the pediatric side, the parent that says, um, when we did the brain two weeks ago, this Kristen girl made my child take her underwear off. So she's super creepy. And now you're using the transmit receive equal, which they have no idea that they're doing and they don't need to take their underwear off. So I like what Carl was saying. I like blanket statements without blankets on the patient. I think that's, that's very important. And one of the other reasons, one of the other things that I want to point out on this is that it's not just the uh, athletic clothing. 
Um, you can go, in fact, I've got a couple of samples of these from <clears throat> putting stuff together in our MR safety officer course, just scrolling through, um, scrolling through, uh, Amazon. And in fact, I was doing that one evening. I was trying to clip pictures cause I wanted to put this into the talk. And so I'm sitting there in my recliner <clears throat> scrolling through my iPad, looking at women's underwear on, um, Amazon when my wife comes up behind me and goes, what are you, what are you doing? And, you know, I told her I was, I was doing research. Um, but there are literally Hanes, uh, one particular advertisement, Hanes microfiber, you know, panties uh, for men, Hanes cool comfort. Uh, so you really just can't go buy buy the brand because these these fibers are getting in there for everything. Howard, your Fruit of the Loom tidy whities might not be safe, okay? So... They may say that they're all cotton, but they really are not. Um, you know, I, again, in the children's world, I, there is one facility I went to that said we absolutely refuse. It is too invasive to ask a child to remove their underwear. This is a change management issue, uh, not just to Carl. No pun intended again. No pun intended again. We've, we've got two puns so far. I, Howard, you and Bill got to catch up with me and Carl. Um, it is, a, it's just, it's, it's a medical procedure. It needs to be respected. I understand we haven't done it for years, but we have seen so many situations that have created a lot, especially the, the Bill talking about the scoliosis 11 year old. She had on that cooling t-shirt underneath the brace. There's, they make you so hot. She was sedated and down the flank of her body. She had horrible blistering. She didn't know it was happening. I mean, change the patients. It just like a, it was like a long sleeve white t-shirt and they sedated her and that happened. So, you know, it's just, it's just like when you go to the OR, you got to take your underwear off, period. It's just going to happen. So it should be the same thing as far as it's a medical procedure and MRI. And then as far as clothing and labeling, I have to give a shout out to QVC. Um, I'm personally not a shopper, but I actually, Bill and I have it in our talk. They actually have a, um, one garment, probably more than that. That was, we were sent the information and the tag inside of the shirt. Um, it was incorrect, but it said, you know, definitely this contains metallic fibers and it should not be worn near or during an MRI scan. Not, it was just a bunch of sequins, so I'm pretty sure it could have gone in the room. But um, QVC is even putting stuff in their labeling as well. So I think we'll start seeing more and more, but I think it starts with the technologist. I think we've got to just, the text needs to start, you know, if we want to practice what we preach, we need to start with an approach where we are not wearing any metal, um, which then, you know, mitigates the risk of alarm fatigue and then we'll know and be sure once we change our patient completely that we are taking them into an MR safe environment. I don't know what you guys think about that. Well, I remember a spirited discussion at our MR safety uh, group, and Carl may may remember this as well, where all yeah. those 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 recommendations were made. And there were a lot of people, us like me, um, who said, you know, we've got brain tumor meningioma follow-up patients who've been coming for 15 years, and they're coming in off the street, and they've always been able to wear, you know, their regular clothes. And you tell them on the way to their clinic visit today when they're rushing that they have to uh, change into hospital gowns. And it's very, very, very unpopular amongst some of the, especially the experienced patients who have to come in for repeated exams. And so last time I was on the committee, we had kind of a waffly recommendation, even though I agree with everything you've said, uh, it's, um, it's sometimes very unpopular for patients. And particularly, as you say, Kristen, with kids, you know, to take off their underpants, it's scary enough for them to be getting an MR uh, and to also have to uh, to strip down completely uh, is very unpopular with some patients. 
how you strike that balance, I'm not sure. I'm at this one facility where they would come back, you know, every month, and then you get to three months, then you get to six months, then you get to one year. So you're talking about exactly to your point, parents that have been told on phone calls, just have them wear, you know, shorts with no zippers and a t-shirt for years. And now I'm going in there or someone else is going in there and saying, I'm sorry, we need you to take your underwear off. I will tell you that every parent that I've spoken to, when I say this is for your child's safety, I've never gotten any flack back from that. And, and Howard, I've got to point out, I love that you said the word spirited. I read into that well, because that is what it is. They are spirited conversations because it is, again, a huge change. And I think the change, Ferris Free has to be rolled out over time. You cannot just say in two weeks you can no longer be wearing, you know, anything that's Ferris. That includes underwire bras for women. Um, they're very expensive shoes um, made by a certain company. Um, you know, give them time. You know, we live paycheck to paycheck. A lot of us do as far as you know, being a technologist. And so that's a, that's a slow rollout, but it, it's got to happen. Um, you know, where I used to work at Children's Healthcare, they, they didn't do it until last October. So it's been almost a year. But if you were not Ferris free by that day, then you don't want to get written up there. They're pretty serious. And so it does have to happen. We have to practice what we preach. If we want anesthesiologists to come into our department and make them take off those shoes and make them change. Why Why does it not start with the tech? And then we have to make that change, like you said, with the patients. I agree for the most part. I would I would change the, the language, though, or the terminology, because ferrous comes from FE, comes from iron. It's not just iron, and that's one of the, the vexing problems here is these other copper, silver uh, microfibers are just as risky. Um, and so they're the ones that are more commonly incorporated into the uh, to the the garments, and it, it reminds me yeah, of that's an, true. It may not be it, in the ferrous, but it's highly conductive. I just there are other dangers of underwear, which are exemplified by the story of the old guy who's hard of hearing, and his wife finally takes him to the doctor against his wishes, and he gets checked out, and the doctor leans back and says, "Sir, I know you came for hearing loss today, but." Uh, there are a lot of signals here that I'm, I don't like, and you haven't been here for decades, so we need some tests. The old guy says, well, what kind of tests? He says, well, I need a blood sample and a urine sample and a stool sample and a semen sample. And the old guy cocks his head and he says, what? And his wife leans over and yells in his ear, doctor says, give him your underpants. <laughs> so there are other dangers in underpants besides the, the microfibers. Okay. I just want to point that out. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, I, you are yeah. just comic relief today. Oh, my God. Well, let me kind of bring this back before we kind of get off of this for a second and, and maybe clarify something here because I think we're talking about two different things. Number one, we're talking about changing the, the patients. Uh, which, which I think needs to start happening. And, and I think you can easily explain this to patients by saying, uh, yes, there is a current trend in clothing manufacturers to include metallic fibers, which have been shown to cause burns and MRI. And in the past, that has not been the case. It's getting more popular now. And we just would rather not burn you or burn your child. And so that's why we're have now having to change clothes because of changes in clothing manufacturers. Then the other thing is if you, from a, from a ferromagnetic free clothing standpoint for staff, then most people, a lot of people have uh, the ferromagnetic detection devices. Uh, typically one of the places is at the scan room door. And so when, you know, if the staff does not dress in uh, articles of clothing that have no ferromagnetic component to them, if they dress, you know, as they normally would, as Kristen said, with underwear and bras, you know, depending on what kind of clothing you'd wear, a belt or whatever, it's going gonna, it's gonna to alarm when it goes in. And many sites that we've talked to 
find that this is very problematic in that it creates uh, alarm fatigue, and then nobody pays attention to the ferromagnetic detection devices because they alarm all the time. I've even been to sites where they've turned them off. And so, you know, in order for these to work properly, you only want them to alarm when there is a reason to alarm. And to Kristen's point, if you're trying to tell the anesthesiologist nursing, no, you got to take all your ferro ferromagnetic stuff off of you, but we don't. We, you know, because we know what we're doing. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And so, you know, I think these are both two very important components for people to consider for your MR safety practices that can really make your facility a lot safer. Um, and again, the clothing thing, just to get back on that for one more thing before we get off of it, I think it's our, it's, it's a, it's a problem of our own doing because for many years we've been advertising MRI as kind of the, and you look at a lot of your hospital and certainly outpatient advertisements and marketing, a good patient experience, you know, people will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on murals on the walls and the ceilings that nobody can see when they're inside the magnet and, you know, and all these lights and all this kind of stuff, but they don't spend any money on look at the simple things for the safety because they want patients to feel like they're, you know, having a spa like experience when in fact it is a medical procedure. And, um, you know, I think over time we have shifted from that medical procedure to this day spa kind of experience and it's creating some problems because we can't work it like that because it's not a day spa. Y'all's thoughts on that? Or not? <laughs> I, I, you know, I can speak to it because I went to the day spa with you. And I'm not going to get off topic here, but they had lavender tea, big plush robes. I've experienced it. And um, it's they. But the big thing there was they made it optional to have hearing protection because they wanted them to be so comfortable. And so that's the thing that just twerked me beyond belief. Um, I'm not twerking everybody, um, you know, but it, it, it is that ticked me off or twerked me off? Well, twerk and twerk are two different things, but. Okay, well, I'm, but, I'm old. We'll tell you, you afterwards. You want to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll just hush up on my words, okay? But that's, that's I, I experienced that with Bill, so, you know, it is, it's yeah. true. I would, I would say if I could just chime in too, that I think it's, it is a balancing act. It's important to make it at least a pleasant experience. You don't want a completely sterile, um, you know, completely white, you know, walls perhaps and bad fluorescent lighting and so on. So I think, you know, we've done a lot of work to make it our facilities pleasant experience, have, you know, nice, you know, reasonable murals on the wall and so on. But again, you can, I think you can do that without compromising, you know, the safety aspects of the procedure. I wonder if anybody knows, um, you know, if you take your average outpatient MRI center in the United States or elsewhere, what percentage of those sites uniformly change people into hospital gowns and make them strip down below their skivvies? Are Any you idea? About, like in Europe, they, they change No, them. just they don't wear clothes there. Uh, but what about what about, <laughs> what about in the okay. in the good old okay. U.S. of A? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, let me let me tell you. No, this is the truth. Okay, this is and this is because I experienced it. I got really sick. I was with a company that was Dutch, so I would spend very experience like extended periods of time owned a bicycle, and I got really really sick, and I had to go to the hospital. And I had no shirt on because they were, I had no gown, no, no anything. They were just checking me for everything. And they said, we're going to take you to x-ray to get a chest x-ray. I was like, okay. So they just said, okay, go ahead, stand up, walk with us. And I'm like, I, have, I, don't, ha I don't have any clothing on, my, on the top of my body. They're like, it's okay. So they just walked me down to x-ray. <laughs> everything hanging out. Took my chest x-ray. And uh, I was sick, just so you know. But um, 
that was worth that walk with me showing everybody things they didn't need to see. So uh, you're right; they don't wear clothes. Tom. I don't. I don't have it. I don't have any hard uh, statistics on this, <laughs> but I can just say I can just say by when we talk to people through the courses and things like that that we do, and Howard, you made a you used a word, and I believe your word was consistently. Um, and that's, if you take into account consistently, I would probably doubt that it's, um, it would not surprise me that it was probably half or greater that don't consistently change patients. Uh, and, and again, it's consistency because we, we were at one large institution and, uh, we, at one particular component of this institution, we noticed some clothing that was getting in there and uh in our debriefing with the people one of the big managers says well we change everybody and i looked at him and said no you don't <laughs> you know you may have that in a policy but everybody's not doing it and this is this is what can happen um any other clothing thoughts before we move to another topic <laughs> It's like closing thoughts that you say closing thoughts. Okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, so Bill, you've got one in there. Everybody's gotten something in there today. I'm good. Let's move on to something else exciting. We had talked in the last episode a lot about some conditions of use. And uh, the conditions of use typically are um, you know, typically deal with things like the field strength, like, te and I think we addressed this, you know, in the last one about testing something at one, five or three T and if it's a passive implant, um, you know, typically if it's not a ferromagnetic concern at one, five or three T, it's not going to be a ferromagnetic concern at, at, at any lower fields. The only thing, the big thing to consider with, uh, to make sure everybody's clear on this, the big thing to consider with uh, field strength conditions of use is to remember that the field strength uh, determines the frequency and the frequency determines the wavelength and frequency and wavelength are inversely related. So Carl, I'd like to get you to just talk a little bit about uh, resonant wavelength kind of concerns because this is the this is as I understand it, this is the underlying basis of an antenna that when you have a length of conductive material and it matches a major harmonic of the wavelength, then you've got yourself a pretty good antenna, correct? And that's kind of the underlying issue here that people need to consider size and and shape. Yeah, like you said, um, you know the the field strength is is sort of a, you know, it is the ferromagnetic component of it, but it also determines, as you mentioned, the wavelength um, of the RF. And if if you have a conductive implant um, in a patient or even outside the patient, depending on, on where it is, um, you know, the, the, the radio frequency, um, you know, how long that implant is, it's, if it's a, a certain fractions of, of that wavelength, um, then you can set up, it's basically a resonant condition in it. Um, you can induce more current in it and, and induce more heating in that object. And, and you'll see that people have done studies where, you know, they varied the length of implants um, and certain lengths will, will, will see more heating than others. And so that's, that's an excellent point to, um, to bring up. Howard, do you have any, any comments on that? Because that sometimes can affect what decisions you may have to deal with when you're kind of assessing risk to a patient for an item. Yep. And it, it kind of goes back also to uh, what Kristen mentioned earlier is the, the, the site that's being imaged and the type of coil, because at least, uh, you know, a lot of the RF comes uh, in the sweet spot of the exam. Uh, maybe Carl can help us with this, but um, I think that has to go into the mix in terms of uh, your precautions. Well, you certainly have to consider, uh, you know, when somebody asks, well, what about this or what about this item? It's like, well, what is it? Where is it? You know, how big is it? What am I scanning? What coil am I using? Where is it relative uh, to that coil? I know we've, um, Carla, get your opinion on this. There's some um, numbers that we kind of throw out there, at least in some of the courses, and, and these are very ballpark, so it's not like set in stone. But from what I've read, um, 
if you are, and if you're looking at, for example, um, a, a length of conductive material, a conductor of some sort, a rod, a, a wire, things like that, that's oriented, number one, in the head-to-foot direction in a patient if they're in a cylindrical magnet. The head-to-foot direction of the patient is the direction of the E-field, the electric field. Am I not correct? And so that's why the direction of this item could also uh, come into play right, with yeah. risk. That's true. Is that it? Yeah, the induced, whatever the induced electric fields are in the patient, um, Definitely, if it it is, you know, like you mentioned, for a cylindrical magnet, it is um, definitely. Um, well, I'm, I'm using language for that talks about heating, but it is worse if it is in that, you know, foot to head direction of the patient. So really long things like, you know, just like you said, certain wires or, you know, internal fixators and those kinds of devices. Um, and so if you know if if the implant is really short, this is sort of a guideline that we use. If it's short, if it's less. Um, then, um, you know, we kind of ballpark it just to be safe. We kind of ballpark it at around 10 centimeters. Um, right. but if it's less than that, then we're usually not as concerned about it. Um, but once you start getting into, um, to longer lengths, then we start to be a little bit more concerned about it. Potentially. The, the um, have we talked about like closed loops? Um, I'm sorry. I was coughing for a few minutes or not like 30 no. seconds. Um, so, um, I was just curious, we're talking about the links of these uh, conductors matching major harmonics. I'm sure that's what you're saying, although I wasn't listening, but I'm sure that you were, you were talking about that. We have were. We talked yeah. about, okay, great. Good job, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, about, what about large closed loops? I had a situation that Bill knows about, um, and um, it was a, something that was done 20 years ago in the DR, and thank goodness they did the CT prior to the MR. It was for scoliosis, but there was this huge, um, enormous closed loop in his um, thoracic and lumbar spine. And can you talk about closed loop or did you already? We have not. <laughs> we have not. Okay. Yeah. I, not, <laughs> you know, it definitely um, try not to get too technical here, but the, you know, the if it's a closed loop or not, it can definitely affect um, the amount of heating. I, I guess when I hear of closed loops, I think of, you know, patients, you know, not putting their hands, you know, on their thighs or clasping oh, yeah. their hands and so on. That's when I hear closed loops like that. I, but even if it's, whether it's a closed loop or not, um, you know, really, it's really the, the total length of the object. I think that, um, that usually influences the amount of heating. Again, if it's a closed loop that can affect it, um, and affect how much heating, there is, but it's it's really you know unless you did really extensive testing or computer simulation, it's it can be a little bit difficult to predict um, exactly how much heating there is, and so we're sort of making general um, kind of general statements or general recommendations for that. Well, yeah, it's it's all a matter of, in, in my my view, it's all a matter of assessing risk. Is is the risk right. yeah. high or is the risk low? And the bigger it is, the higher the risk. Exactly. Uh, whether it yeah. would actually do it or not, yeah, you know, no, but it's a risk. So going back to the to the length and size of it, and then you mentioned something else that Luke, I'm gonna more speak to. Um, the numbers we typically throw out are it's like. Uh, if you're at one and a half Tesla, let's see, Carl, if you agree with these, something in the 25 to 30 centimeter range is typically where one and a half Tesla seems to be, you know, pretty, pretty risky. Yep. High yep. Risk, that's, risk. Yeah. that's sort of theoretically. Yeah. That's the fraction of the wavelength that we're usually, um, we're usually most concerned about. And again, if you're at three T, you mentioned one and a half T. Um, yeah. And then if you're at three T, it's half of that. So you're getting, so you're no. getting short. And that's why I sort of, why we sort of use the 10 centimeter because we can sort of apply yeah. that to, to either, field. you know, we have a mix of field strengths at our institution and we can kind of um, apply that. And yeah, if they're going in 1.5 T, you know, maybe we can go a little bit longer, you know, we might be more comfortable with up to 15 or so just to, again, try to stay well away from that, that 25 yeah. centimeter that you mentioned. Carl, can you tell us or explain how, you know, some of the recurrent, imaging for uh, devices that are pretty similar uh, in each case, like the vagal, uh, vagal nerve stimulators or more commonly the deep brain stimulators, 
when those are implanted, we use sort of a, a coiling a procedure at the scalp. And I assume that's sort of a bucking, anti-bucking, you know, changing the direction. And even though those go all the way from the chest to the top of the head, those can be imaged safely under conditions uh, that are in the label. And I assume that has something to do with how the neurosurgeons are wrapping those wires. Can you give us a little thumbnail sketch on why that works? Yeah. So um, basically the um, if you, if you loop the coil of wire and <laughs> again, this is very, it's kind of a, a, gen, a general statement, but if you, if you have loops of wire and, you know, if they're positioned at the top of the head, basically any, if there is a current that's induced in those loops of wire, it can create a magnet field that actually kind of opposes the formation of additional currents. And it just kind of, um, again, without <laughs> getting too technical, just, it kind of can, it can kind of work to keep the induced currents down. So it is a, it is a, a mechanism that can do that. I, I'm not sure that the device manufacturers, again, I'm not privy to their testing, uh, you know, all the testing that they do. I'm not sure that you can completely rely on that. If, if you do that coiling, it does, definitely does help. And there are, we do have some devices like, um, for instance, uh, let's see, it's a implant, it's a intracranial pressure monitor. I think the Codmans where they, that's actually in their conditions that if you image a patient with those is that the conditions are that you wrap, wrap that coil it at the top of the head. Um, and, and that kind of has two things that that can do is it can, it can do that, that, that uh, coiling or that anti-current generation, but it also keeps the device shorter. So you don't have a long length of wire kind of sticking down beside the patient. And, um, and there have been case reports where when that, when that, those conditions haven't been followed and that wire is sort of hanging loose there, that that's caused injury in patients as well. So um, again, there's a, that does sort of getting off track here a little bit, but that does help to do that sort of thing. Um, the effect of it, again, it's, it's, it's a little bit variable. It may be hard to have a surgeon do it consistently the exact same way every time. And so I'm not sure that the, the vendors rely on that for their labeling and when they're designing the devices to be, you know, MR conditional, um, I'm not sure that they can fully rely on that, but it, yes, it does help um, in that regard. Well, I was going to say that there was a uh, one of the clients we worked with that had a um, uh, intraoperative magnet was telling me of a incident where the and, and it was one of these devices uh, that the conditions of use said before you scan it because it had an implanted portion, then it had a you know explanted portion hanging out. And that was supposed to be coiled on top of the head. And nobody checked it. And, of course, it's difficult in the intraoperative environment because you've got all these drapes and everything on everything, on the patient and whatnot. <clears throat> and it, it turned out that this, this patient did receive a thermal injury because they didn't coil uh, the wire. And by coiling it, I mean, Carl, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things about coiling it is that you are you are creating a loop, but it's a very small loop. Yeah, it's a small loop. Um, it's usually a couple of coils of wire, and yeah, it, it makes the it makes the coil that anti um, bucking uh, characteristic, but it also makes it a shorter wire. I mean, it just makes it shorter. So if, if right. you just have um, you know a, a much shorter wire in that head to foot direction, you're going to have much less risk of heating as well. There was another thing, Carl, that you mentioned that I heard in a safety presentation a few weeks ago. Uh, the radiologist uh, was talking about uh, preventing burns, and she was talking about the uh, preventing these loops, large loops, and to what you immediately brought to mind is what she was addressing, and that is where a patient's lying in the magnet and they're, they've got a bare finger barely touching their bare thigh, bare, bare, barely touching the bare thigh there. So it creates a large closed loop where the finger is barely touching the thigh. You get resistive losses because it's a poor circuit and the energy gets focused in that area. And so you can get a burn. The, the point I wanted to make about this, and again, most technologists, MR technologists are familiar with this, but one, her point, and she showed a couple of images of it, and I really thought this was very brilliant, never, never even come close to thinking of this, 
she was saying, take a look at your images, look at your localizer, look at, uh, you know, whatever it is you're scanning, say you're scanning through the pelvis, you know, look at the images. And if you see a patient's hand in the field of view, you know, touching their leg, or you see their arms crossed, their fingers touching, you know, as you're looking through these images, stop the scan, go in and fix that. And I never had thought of it that way, but I think that is an excellent safety practice for technologists to be not only positioning the patient, but then double checking and looking, you know, the patient moves, look at the images and see if you can identify some skin to skin contact like that. What's everyone's thought on that? Well, I think especially if they're sedated or under GA, you know, we do count probably uh, too much on patient reports when they're awake. You know, some of those burn injuries we talked about in in the clothing section earlier, um, people may not have even noticed it. And and that's one of the hard things about this. They may, the the burn thermal injury may appear over a couple of days after the MR. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think we have to be especially cautious in subjects, uh, children or adults who are sedated or otherwise unable to communicate. And that, that's a great idea. I hadn't heard of that before either. Uh, Just doing a large field of view loc and seeing if there are any loops apparent that you can uh, go in and fix. Well, and she was even saying, like, look look at the images. So if something changes during the course of the scan, depending on what you're scanning, obviously you may or may not see that. But certainly if you're doing body imaging, uh, you're you know, more likely to see that. I, I just thought that was a good suggestion. Kristen, I don't know. We can discuss that. What do you think? I don't think you discussed it with me. So thanks for keeping me in the dark until we got onto the podcast, but it's okay. Sure. Um, no, <laughs> just joking. Um, not really. Um, but um, I, I do think that, no, that's a, that's a fantastic approach, but obviously you have to be, you know, imaging that body part to actually capture it in that, that, that way. So I think it's great. Well, there's another topic that I'd like to discuss going back to conditions of use. We talked about the field strength and the wavelength thing, uh, closed loops, that sort of stuff. One of the conditions of use that seems to give people uh, a lot of grief is this maximum spatial gradient where, uh, for example, you've got a a device and it says maximum spatial gradient of, I don't know, I'm going to use 720 gauss per centimeter because it seems like there's hundreds of them that state <laughs> 720 gauss per centimeter. And this is, of course, the spatial gradient at the point that the object was tested for its deflection, for the force exerted on it by the magnet. And one of the problems, and again, I want to get Carl's viewpoint on this. There's a couple of, there's several problems with this particular reporting this condition of use. Number one, this condition of use, for years they've been testing items relative to their deflection angle and the deflection forces, um, but they did not used to report this. And then all of a sudden they started reporting it, and then people don't scan stuff. So it's always been done, but it's never always, it's not always been reported. Secondly, the test tests the item simply hanging by a thin thread. So there's no counter forces uh, taken into consideration and anything put in the body is going to be attached in some way. Um, And then I'm not, I'm not aware of any, patient injury where the only condition of use that was violated was this spatial magnetic field gradient. Carl, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, that's great, great condition of use. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is also one of my least favorites. Um and I yeah, I'm not aware of uh any any direct injury or or any any injury directly caused by violating this. I, I think it would be very difficult to you know, find something. Generally, if something is, is strongly ferromagnetic, it's it's really going to violate that. And you're, right. and you're it's you know, the difference, it's not gonna get the difference between, you know? yeah, and the difference, ex- <laughs> exactly. In, in vivo, the difference, you know, if it was seven, you said, okay, it was labeled at 720. 
you know, the difference between 700 or 750, you know, what is, what is the real cutoff and, and those counteracting forces of the body there, there is, I mean, it is generally accepted that, you know, you, you hang it by a thread and if, if the deflection angle is um, greater than 45 degrees, that means that the magnetic force is bigger than the, say the gravitational force um, on that device. And that's, you know, the ASTM, which helps is one of the guidelines that people use for, for device testing is that's, that's in those guidelines as well. You know, the biggest problem is, I think, is determining for your scanner, you know, where, where that spatial gradient is, you know, we do try to follow that, but, you know, we have like, if you have that, you know, let's say that 720, I think on our 3T magnets, there are some, you know, technically patient accessible regions that go above that. Um, but if you actually look at the chart that our vendor provides, you know, on the table where the patient really is going to be, you know, and that device is going to, and that implant is going to be, if, if you just keep them on the table and, and move them into the magnet, it's not going to be in that region. It's like the patient's not going to be hugging the side of the bore of the, you know, the front of the bore of the magnet, yeah. you know, you know, you really have to try hard to get in, to get in into the wrong position. I feel like um, there is, you know, I did see a demonstration and this is not the vendor we have for our MRI scanner. They actually had a, a nice user interface where they would, you know, you could type in that spatial gradient. Um, I'm not sure if we're allowed to say it in the podcast, if we're supposed to be vendor neutral here, but um, they had a nice, you know, thing where you type that in and they would actually color for you on a little diagram, you know, keep, keep the device out of this region, you know, as you're moving them into the bore. Um, and, well, that's, and the, that's, 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 a, that's, that's, that's the scan lines yeah, interface a, on yeah, Phillips. Exactly. Right? Okay. Yeah. So I'll let you say it. <laughs> um, yeah. You can say it. So yeah, the scan lines, that's a, that's a great thing. I basically have followed that and I color a little diagram and I say, you know, if I don't, you know, we don't usually see below like things labeled 720. If we did, then we could, we could look into it a little bit more. Um, but whatever, if it's 500 or so, I think maybe 500 at 3T or whatever, we don't usually see that a whole lot. But if we did, um, and if it goes outside that on our little chart that I've shown all of our technologists, um, then we might look into a little bit more. But to be honest, we don't really see it that much. Um, usually the, you know, the patient, the, the place where the patient is going to be in the center of the t table, we have found, again, I don't want to make a general statement for every single possible device or MRI scanner out there, but we found that we haven't really run into this a whole lot. So, I mean, you know, I just want to say ScanWise has been around forever. And, um, I'm sure all of you know that, um, Bill and I are rather opinionated. And when this first came out at RSNA, we, we go every year. Um, we were like, this is fantastic. And um, I, I know that other vendors are working on something, but all Philips has done is actually really perfect it. And I'm telling you, as a technologist, it's really nice to say yes to an implant, to go through that thought process. It's part of the decision tree that Bill and I talk about all the time to see um, the maps and, and what it's going to, what the device is going to be exposed to, as long as you have the information, and then it shows a bright red underneath um, the patient's name and information. So I, I just think it's a really, and then it limits you from scanning beyond those parameters. I have a, a related sort of pet peeve uh, about conditions of use that have have to do with waiting a specific period of time after implantation of devices, and it's typically six weeks. If you actually drill down and look at where that came from, you know, it's like there you shouldn't scan them before six weeks, but it's okay after six weeks. That came from some rabbit surgery MR data from George Teitelbaum uh, when he was at UCLA, like in the 80s or something like that, and it showed that fibroblasts came in and tacked things down by six weeks. You know, you shouldn't depend on fibroblasts to keep things in. And so I've, I've always violated that rule when I've needed to. If, if it's a safe device at six weeks, I figure it's safe this afternoon after it was put in, if they have a good reason to have the MR done. And I just wonder if, if that sounds too cavalier or unsafe, but I've never understood the actual basis other than it's a precedent in the literature and everybody seems to to stick with it. I don't think they do. Um, we did a six-day-old baby that had an implant that said six weeks. And, I mean, obviously we did some research on it. 
final determination was made by people like you, Dr. Howard Raleigh. Um, and um, so I, I, I don't, I think a lot of people, I actually, I think a lot of techs do follow that condition of use. What do you think, Bill? Well, I think as Howard will agree, most radiologists are risk averse and then, you know, to go, well, you know, it says that maybe we should do that. But the reality is <clears throat> that, uh, you know, there is no document. I mean, when you put something, I mean, let's take coronary artery stents, for example, you put those in there. I mean, they go into work right away with forces much greater than the force of gravity. If, um, you know, if somebody, the, the only device that I have that I'm aware of that really probably makes a difference is a is a pacemaker only because they want to give it time for the the lead to seat down into the heart. So that's why people with pacemakers are told to take it easy for X amount of time, you, you know, simply because of, to allow time for the wire to, to seat down in there. Uh, but again, I know most people will scan them if they need to be scanned, they need to be scanned and the risk to the patient is, is exceedingly small, as is the risk, in my opinion, for this maximum spatial gradient. Because think about it, if, if something's deflecting greater than 45 degrees, then that just simply means it's getting a force greater than 1G. And if this gets implanted into somebody, and it can't withstand a force greater than the force of gravity. This person should probably not ride a roller coaster or fly in an airplane, you know, because of the force that's going to be subjected to it. Carl, let me let me run something by you here and see what you think of this. This was something that was told to us by uh, Joe Ox, a physicist up in uh, Pennsylvania, and what he does for this is he said, so your fist, uh, if you look at your fist, your fist is about 10 centimeters wide, more or less. And so what he did was go to the manufacturer's charts and find out what the spatial, it's sort, it's sort of like doing the color, except he was doing it with his fist, find out what the spatial gradient is about 10 centimeters in from the bore wall at the mouth of the magnet. And then, so he would say, okay, to the text, okay, if you go and put your fist up against the bore wall at the mouth of the magnet, if whatever this device is going through your fist, then it's less than whatever that amount is 10 centimeters in. Does that make sense? I mean, I thought that was a pretty simple Yeah, I think that is a good idea. That, I think that makes sense. I think it's just, again, it's, it's keeping, you know, the patient is going to, it's generally an implant that we're talking about, right? So it's going to be inside right, the patient's yeah. body and the chance of that getting within that distance from the bore wall, um, where again, theoretically it could be problematic. Um, again, with a lot of these devices, we don't know for sure, but yeah, if you can keep it outside the width of a fist, I think that, I think that is probably a good metric. Um, yeah. So. I mean, bottom, you know, unfortunately my bottom line is this. I just, I think the risk to a patient posed, by violating just that condition of use. In other words, right. you keep every other condition of use. The only one that you don't really care about or look at is the maximum spatial gradient. I think the risk is probably negligible, you know, if everything else is followed. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would again, if I saw a device where, <laughs> you know, the, the, the spatial gradient limit was a lot different than what, you know, our is the worst case for our scanners, then I might take a look at it. But I, again, I haven't seen, um, I'm not sure I've seen a device yet in our, in our practice yet where we've, where we've, we'd really be in serious trouble violating that. So, yeah. So, well, uh, you know, folks, we're actually kind of at the end of this podcast here. I think we've talked about a lot of good, a lot of good things. Howard, do you have any closing thoughts, uh, clothing thoughts, clothing? <laughs> I do Howard, have a forward. Yeah, I, I have <laughs> You're debating me, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) I just want to, you know, um, point out that if you look at the ACR manual, we spent a lot of time on clothing and stuff and whether you gown everybody or not. um, They say that it is advisable to require that patients or research subjects wear site-supplied MR-safe scrubs. 
they never say it's required. And I think that goes back to what a lot of people, you know, doing collectively hundreds of millions of MRs have found is that it is generally safe. uh, And, you know, I, I think it is advisable to change them, but don't ask me to do that with every single patient. That's, I'm sorry. (laughs) All right. I'll I'll go second because Howard, we know that you are the person of all knowledge for all subjects. And so therefore you would understand all of the differences to make that very educated decision. So I always agree with you, but in this situation, I would say it's better to just have them change, even though it's just advisable, um, because there will be people that always um, choose not to, and that could really run into a situation that could be problematic, because as you pointed out, copper, okay, it's, no, it's, it's more of, it's a heating issue, it's, and they can get burned, it's not, you know, conductive. Um, it's not ferrous, but it's conductive. So um, I, I'm going to go with, I, I think everyone should change. And um, I think that it is all about, I'll end it with, it's all about change management and slowly implementing this into both the staff as well as to the patients. All right. Carl, any, any last thoughts from you? Um, no, I don't think I have any. Yeah, it is a complicated subject. Um but uh, yeah, I, I would say if there is any question, though, definitely if there's a question, if you're unsure, if it's athletic clothing, if, if there's any, any question at all, I wouldn't hesitate to change them. All right. Well, everyone, I want to thank you again for taking part in this MRI cast. I want to thank everyone for joining us. I want to thank uh, Bracco again for the very generous unrestricted educational grant for sponsorship. We hope you have found this information useful. We've just had a blast. And so we will catch you next time. We're done. We're out of here. Just get over it. See you next time. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You've been listening to MRI Cast. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics.
You've been listening to MRI Cast. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Brocco Diagnostics. Thank you.